Yeah, it's good to be with you. Um, let's look. Let's have some more fun with Luke's gospel. You'll notice that. Uh, I'll do a little advertising here. Um, you'll notice that uh, I've had requests that uh, we start our uh, Bible studies up again. The ladies' Bible study, the men's Bible study, and that's in the uh, the notice sheet that I give you on Sundays. Ladies, if you're able to come, um, please use the sign-up sheet. Gentlemen, it's it's potluck kind of thing, so bring something to eat. Ladies, do that as well. Um, Let's keep working on, uh, I know it's, with the COVID thing it's difficult and we have to be careful, but um, let's, let's continue to work with these Bible studies in the sense of this. If you're able to come, please do, so that we continue to enhance our reputation in our community as this. <laughs> Here's what I'm getting at. Congregations are known for certain things. Do you realize that? <laughs> so... I can, I can say the name of a certain congregation, you'll say, oh yeah, I know that congregation, and, and then you've got something in your head about how you know that congregation. We're known for many things in our community, but let's, let's enhance our reputation for, if you want to study the Word of God and learn the Word of God, you go to Trinity. And that happens by more and more of our, our congregation members attending these Bible classes if they're able, and inviting people in our community or friends or whatever to attend so that our, our reputation for studying God's word and learning from God's word just gets out all the more. So I, I do this because, you know, every once in a while I'll pray, like I did this morning, for God to bring more and more people from our communities to Trinity to hear God's word and receive Christ's gifts. One other side note on this, I forget who I was, oh yes, I was talking to one of my friends yesterday on the phone. He lives in Des Moines. He's a professor at one of the universities in Des Moines, and he's a pastor as well. And he was telling me about one of his friends that he knows who's also a pastor. And this pastor friend of his was telling me that he did his doctoral dissertation on this topic. That the church purposely targets someone to attend church and get active. Who do you think it might be? Young men. Young men. And I said to my friend who I was talking with on the phone, I said, yes, that's very important. Very important in this world in which young men, especially white men, young men are targeted as being evil. Evil. Okay? If you don't believe me, uh-uh. Those of you who have young boys, you're going to see this. Uh, your, your boys aren't going to want to date girls. Because if they look at the girl just uh, in a way that the girl might not like, he's done. Like opening the car door. You know, opening the door for her. That might be the end of his life, his career at work. That's no joke. So this, this dissertation that this man wrote about the church should target, and I mean that in a good way, <laughs> should identify young men and encourage them to come to church, etc. Now, one of the things that uh, I've observed, and uh, my friend mentioned this as well, is that a lot of men are not going to church these days. And in a general, general way, here's why. A lot of men, whether they're young or old, won't come to church anymore because the pastors, if they're men, are too effeminate. And the whole service is so effeminate. Men want to go to a church where the pastor is, to use the German word, a mensch. Mensch in German is a man. I don't know if you've observed that, but I have. This helped. This is one of the reasons of what we're seeing in our country where a lot of men aren't going to church because they want a man to lead. They want a man to give them an example of what it means to be a, a man. 
Okay. Well, enough on that. Now, if you've got your sheet, you want to turn to page six. Page six, where it says part five. Part five, look at letter C. Let's look up those passages under letter C. Let's go to Colossians 4. We're looking at some clues in Luke's gospel, but we're going to look, who is this Luke in the New Testament? That's what we're doing. We all know that Luke wrote the gospel. We all know that he wrote Acts, but who is he? I mean, was he an apostle? I want an answer for that one. That one's not a rhetorical question. Was Luke an apostle? He was not. He was not an apostle. Okay. So let's read some of these passages. Colossians 4. And while you're looking it up, so he wasn't an apostle, but Luke is an evangelist. Matthew, an apostle, but also evangelist. Mark, an evangelist. Luke, an evangelist. John, an apostle and an evangelist. Are you all in Colossians 4? Let's look at verses 10 through 14. Here Paul writes, My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, this is, a, this is not Jesus Christ here, this is another person, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend, see the name? Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So we know about Luke from Paul's writing here that doc, what's, what's his vocation? He's a physician. So sometimes if you look up symbols of, of St. Luke, you'll see him pictured as not only an evangelist, but evangelist slash physician. And you'll see, that you'll see uh, lots of clues then in Luke's gospel. He knows certain things and lists certain things that only a doctor would talk about. You follow this? All right, so now let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 19. <coughs> Acts 119. Uh, while you're looking this up, I'm going I'm to give some more uh, advertising or just sidebar stuff again. So I'm going to go to Wichita, Kansas in February, and I've been asked to give a presentation about uh, Dr. Kenneth Corby, who is, uh, he died, oh my, I lose track of time, at least 10 years ago, maybe 15, I lose track of time. But he, he was like my father in the faith, if you will, as a pastor. If you go in my study, I have a picture of him in my study. So I've been asked to, to give a speech and a, a lecture on Kenneth Corby. And uh, Kenneth would always, when I would take him, he would, he would speak. He spoke here in this area numerous times in Nebraska. And so I was like the conduit, if you will, to pick him up. He'd stay with us at our house when we lived in Hebron, even here at uh, Murdoch. And so when I'd take him to the airport when he'd go home and I'd say goodbye, here's what he would do. 
he would, he would take me by the shoulders, cowboy, the black cowboy hat, black cowboy boots, because he grew up in Cheyenne Wells, Colorado. <laughs> and big, big honking crucifix. Okay, you know that area, don't you? So, so it's funny. This is funny because last week, you know, I, I tongue in cheeked it with with uh, belt buckles and all that kind of stuff. Remember that? That's Kenneth Corby. So you drop him off at the airport, and in saying goodbye, he grabs me by the shoulders and he says, "Be a mensch." And he would always, always in his presentations, he would always come to Exodus 32, and this is all in reference with being a man, and a man in the sense of a pastor being a man. Kenneth would always reference Exodus 32. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 32? Let's review. Israel is at Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain. He's been up there for a number of days and weeks. And Israel doesn't think he's coming back. So Israel asks Aaron, the brother of Moses, right? Asks Aaron. I'm going to paraphrase. Moses, he ain't coming back. So Moses, make gods for us, or make a god for us who will lead us through the wilderness. And at that point, Aaron, this is what Corby would always say, and I quote, Corby would say this, this is when Aaron forgot his genitalia and pretended that he had different genitalia and acted like a woman. And so what did Aaron do when the Israelites said, make a god for us? What did Aaron do? Well, okay, I guess, as Corby would always do this, well, okay, I guess, if that's what you want. And so give me all your gold jewelry and, you know, your rings and all that stuff. And, and what did he do? He made an idol, a golden calf. And then the text says that Israel got up to play. Read it in your Bibles. Israel got up to play. That's the old King James that I still have in, you know, what's the right word? Tattooed on my brain. In the Hebrew, they got up to play meant they had sexual immorality in front of the idol. This was, this was contemporary worship. Because <laughs> that's what they did in those days in the ancient world. Okay? My point is, is that when Corby would say, be a mensch, say, don't be like Aaron. When people come up to you and say, why don't you give us what we want, Reverend? Now tell them no. Don't give them permission to sin like Aaron did. I hope that's helpful for you. You know, because the temptation today in our world, especially with the vocation of pastor, is for the pastor to be effeminate and give people what they want. Now, I don't say the effeminate thing to be derogatory to women in particular, but you understand what I'm trying to say? Okay. All right. So are you in Acts 1, verse 19? Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, namely Judas when he committed suicide. Everybody in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language. Now notice this technical term, akeldama, that is field of blood. Just take note of that, and we'll make more remarks about it in a minute. Now go to Acts 28, 2-4. Acts 28, 2 to 4. In fact, let's go 2 to 5, and then I want to say something about uh, Sumatra. <laughs> kind of doing some of this on the top of my head, so I'll see if I can remember names. Are you there? Acts 28, 2 to 5. Let's read that. 
Let's start at verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Remember, the, the, Paul's been shipwrecked. Okay, now they're on the island called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now just keep that in mind. Now side note, look at verse 5. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Look at verse 6. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god or a divinity. Just keep that story in mind. I'll say more about it in a minute. But this is now another side note. So when I taught in Sumatra, the missionary that finally made headway in Sumatra, a German man who before he left, I'm trying to remember his name and it escapes me now. Ah, I'll remember it after class is over. But he learned the language of the peoples that he was going to try and evangelize. He learned their language, he learned their culture. Now these people were, they're cannibals at this time. But this missionary, here's how he made headway. The tribal people there in this big valley in Sumatra, where the Batak people live. Batak is their tribe. That's the big culture there. So the Batak uh, chief, or prince, if you will, for lack of better language, invited the missionary for supper. They poisoned his meal. He didn't die. And while he was eating his meal, he slipped a little snack to the dog that was by him, and the dog died. <laughs> uh, that, that reminds me of this story here in Acts. And so this man made huge headway among the Batak people in Sumatra. That's why there are millions of Christians, by the way, in Indonesia and in Sumatra. Side note. <laughs> okay. Now, keep that story in mind. We'll come back to it in a minute. Now, compare what we just read with 2 Corinthians 8. Go to 2 Corinthians 8, please. Nomanson, that's the man's name, Nomanson. <clears throat> By the way, while you're looking up 2 Corinthians 8, I've been uh, binge-watching on Netflix, and there's, there's this one series that I've never really, was never interested in, and all of a sudden I can't get enough of it. It's called The Blacklist. And so James Spader, what an actor. Oh, I, I just love the way he acts as Raymond Reddington. It is just, it's outstanding. Uh, like a mensch, if you will. I'm, I'm not saying that what he does is, you know, but a mensch. <laughs> Being a mensch, and the way he's a mensch, it just it cracks me up. Are you in 2 Corinthians? <laughs> All right, verse, verses 16 to 19. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Now let's go to verse 19. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself 
and to show our eagerness for help. So who is this brother? Well, more on that in a minute. But let's compare that to Galatians 2. <coughs> so we're going to compare 2 Corinthians 8 to Galatians 2. <coughs> Galatians 2, verse 3. Paul says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a, <coughs> even though he was a Greek. All right, so go to page 7 on your sheet. We'll connect some dots here. Page 7, where it says Luke in the New Testament. There are uh, three definite references to Luke in the New Testament, assuming that Lucius in Romans 16.21 and Acts 13.1 is a different person. The three references are Colossians 4.14, which refers to him as the beloved doctor or physician. Now Philemon 24 calls him one of Paul's fellow workers. Luke is one of Paul's fellow workers, and 2 Timothy 4.11 states that Luke is with Paul during his imprisonment at Rome. Now that Luke was a doctor seems to be true on the basis of the clues in his gospel. Many scholars see numerous medical terms in his writings. For example, Luke describes illnesses and ailments with more medical precision than the other gospels. Peter's mother-in-law, according to Luke, doesn't just suffer from a fever, but rather a high fever. And a leper is described as not just having leprosy, but full of leprosy. This is how a doctor would talk. But more significant is the case of a woman who suffers from a, a hemorrhage. Luke, in the Greek, omits the comment that she spent her savings on doctors without being cured. <laughs> the other evangelists do, but Luke doesn't. <laughs> you understand? Okay. Luke, the physician, refuses to disparage his fellow physicians. Now, the reference to Luke in Colossians is also a clue that Luke was a, a Gentile. In the previous verses, in Colossians 4, 10 to 11, Paul mentions a guy by the name of Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, Justice, as my fellow workers who are of the circumcision. That is, Paul identifies these people as Jews, namely Aristarchus, Mark, etc. Then, in the following verses in Colossians 4, verses 12 to 14, Paul lists three more names, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, implying that these three were not Jews, but rather Gentiles. So what I'm doing here is I'm giving you some clues about who this Luke is. He's a doctor. Of what race is he? He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Let's keep going. Two passages in Acts corroborate the clue given in Colossians. In referring to the plot of ground bought with the money paid to Judas, Luke writes, that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama. That is, field of blood, which we just read earlier. Note that the Jewish name Akel Dama is a word in their own language. Their own language, namely Jews, their own language. You following me? That is, 
Luke is distinguishing his race from that of the Jews. The same implication is also present in the last chapter of Acts, Acts 28-4. Luke describes the inhabitants of Malta, where Paul was shipwrecked, as barbarians. The English doesn't quite translate it, but in the Greek it's barbarians, translated as natives, usually in our English language. The people of Malta were Phoenicians. You know, if you get National Geographic, they always do something on the Phoenicians, you know. And the Phoenicians are a Semitic people, and they are related to the Jews or the Hebrews. So it would be odd for a Jew, that is to say, if Luke was a Jew, it would be odd for him to refer to the people of Malta as barbarians. But it was customary for Greeks to refer to all non-Greeks as barbarians, which basically meant strangers or non-Greeks. Now, other passages in the New Testament may be pertinent to the racial background of Luke. In 2 Corinthians 8, which we read, Paul speaks of sending Titus to Corinth to expedite the collection or the offering that's been raised for the church in Jerusalem. And then he adds these words. We have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. The brother, which could also be translated as, in the Greek, his brother, probably refers to Luke, who would then be the brother of Titus. Titus, we know, is certainly a Gentile from Paul's statements in Galatians 2-3, which we read earlier, that Titus was a, a Greek. All right? Now let's talk about, let's go back to Luke 1. Back to Luke 1. I want to point something out and then have some more fun with that. Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And I contend that Mary is one of the eyewitnesses that Luke interviewed, because Luke gives details that only Mary could give about our Lord's life. Like Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. There's no doubt she told Luke this. Okay, that's just one example. Okay, so back to page 8. Top of page 8. Luke's sources. In his preface, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke, in the Greek, speaks of having investigated carefully all things from the beginning. This statement raises the matter of Luke's sources. Where could he have received the information included in his two-volume work, namely his Gospel and Acts? He himself, of course, was an eyewitness to much of the information included in the second half of Acts. Remember, he was a companion of Paul. So Paul would have been a primary source as well for Paul's missionary journeys that he records in the book of Acts. Other fellow workers of Paul, such as Silas, Timothy, Aristarchus, would also be reliable sources of information. Concerning the early years of the church, information could be gleaned from Philip, the evangelist, which Paul speaks of in Acts. Remember Philip, who does he baptize? Do you remember? In the book of Acts? Remember that you've got this guy, he's sitting in his chariot, he's reading Isaiah 53, and Philip comes and the guy's a eunuch that's sitting in the chariot. If you don't know what that is, look it up. 
There are kids in the room, so I can't, I can't be frank. Okay? And where, who does he serve, this eunuch? He serves Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This is, this is be like the, the treasure of the United States of America. This is a big wig. And Philip does what? He, he tells the eunuch that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. And the eunuch says, well, here's water here. Why, why, why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip then baptizes him. This is the Philip that, that Paul is referring to here. Or pardon me, that Luke refers to in Acts. So you get him, Luke would get information from Philip and Manasseh, an early disciple at Jerusalem, each of whom Luke visited with Paul at Caesarea and in Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts 21. During Paul's two-year imprisonment at Caesarea, Acts 24, Luke would have had time to travel through Palestine and interview various individuals for information, including Mark's mother and James, the brother of our Lord. While Paul was under house arrest at Rome for two years, Luke would have had access to information from Peter and Mark, as he tells us in Acts 28, 30 and 1 Peter 5. Peter tells us these things. The mother of Jesus, Mary, could also have been a source of which she would give things that no one else would say. To Luke, that is. You understand what I'm trying to say? I didn't say that very well. But, you know, the things that Luke records in Luke 1 and in Luke 2, the Annunciation, when Gabriel preaches the word into Mary's ears, the Holy Spirit, well, Mary most likely told him about that. The shepherds, etc. Joseph. I mean, who in the world would have who in the world would have told Luke that when Joseph was told that Mary's pregnant, she, he wanted to divorce her quietly. But an angel came to him in a dream and said, no, 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 no. The baby's conceived by the Holy Spirit, so take her as your wife. Well, Mary would have told Luke those things. I hope that's helpful for you. Any questions about that? Um, I don't have my watch. My battery died. What's our time? So, say it again. Thank you so much. Let's keep going then. Look at part six. Some characteristics of Luke's gospel. I've hinted at this over the last couple of months where we've been doing this. I'll, I'll remind you again, one of the big characteristics is the Holy Spirit in Luke's gospel. So if you read Luke's gospel, you'll see Holy Spirit all over the place, which, which tells you what's going on. So for example, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Simeon at the temple, when Jesus is 40 days old, he is told, Simeon is told by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Those are two examples. Just keep reading them. Jesus baptized in the Jordan River, and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of the dove. What's going on? There are many things, but one in particular. In the Old Testament, God promised that when Messiah came, in the last days, when Messiah would come, he would pour out the Holy Spirit. And so lo and behold, in the book of Acts, you have what? The Holy Spirit being poured out, not only on the, on the uh, 12, but also upon all who were gathered there in baptism, Acts 2. Remember Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and then every, every baptism then is a little Pentecost. You remember this. Don't forget this. This, uh, this is fun for me. I hope this is fun for you. So Holy Spirit in Acts 2 poured out as promised in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Joel said in chapter 2, in the last days. That is day. In the end of time. That's Messiah time. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people. 
It begins at Pentecost. Peter quotes Joel 2, by the way. Check it out. So Pentecost is a fulfillment of an end times prophecy. That is to say, the end of time has now begun. Not only in our Lord's life, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Simeon, led by the Holy Spirit, now Pentecost. So the time from our Lord's first coming to his second coming is the end days, the last days. Following this? Let me finish this train of thought with every baptism is a little Pentecost. So in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. The apostles can preach in languages that people can understand. And so, by the way, that every Sunday, whether there's a baptism or not, but when the gospel is preached in a language that you can understand, uh-huh, it's a Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is at work in the language being preached that you can understand, just like in Acts 2. And then how does Acts 2 conclude? The people are cut to the heart with Peter's sermon. And they ask Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Which matches Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations. So be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise, namely promise of forgiveness and gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all. So let's clinch it. Every Sunday is a little Pentecost, and every baptism is a little Pentecost, because God, the triune God, puts his name on the person who's baptized, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives himself to you. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You see this? This is fun. All right? So characteristics. Go to Luke 15. Verse 2. Luke 15, verse 2. Let's even start at verse 1. Because who's gathered around Jesus? Now, the tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> so, you know, what was, by the way, what was Matthew's vocation? He's a tax collector. Do you remember his, his given Hebrew name? Levi. Levi. Jesus calls him Matthew. Reminds me of somebody else in the New Testament. Simon, Jesus gives him the name Peter. Any of it. Tax collectors and sinners, these would be like prostitutes. These would be the worst, the dregs of society. They gather around to hear Jesus. Look at verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Just a side note. I think I preached it, uh, it was last Sunday, I believe it was. Um, do you realize, you might not realize this, so it, I think it bears repeating, that when the pastor says in teaching, preaching, whatever, that Jesus died for you or that Jesus forgives you, do you realize there's backspin on that language? Have mercy on me, I'm not saying this very well, so just run with me. So when the pastor says Jesus died for you or your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake, there's backspin sometimes because the backspin is this. If, if Jesus died for me and if Jesus forgives me my sins, that means what about me? Spin it backwards. I'm a what? I'm a sinner. <laughs> because Jesus is for what kind of people? You see, and the, so the Pharisees are offended because Jesus is hanging around a bunch of... See, they don't think they're... You understand how important this is? See, this helps you diagnose why people don't go to church sometimes, and maybe for their entire life. 
Why? Because they know that at church they will hear a message that for, for most people is the best news they could ever hear. Those of you know, those of you who know who could resonate with this know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you rejoice in Christ's forgiveness. Why? Because you know you are a sinner and you've been broken and you've been hurt and you're you're desperate. And so you cling to Jesus with all your heart. But there are some people who won't, they don't want to hear the gospel. Because if they hear the gospel, that means that they are a sinner. And they'll have nothing to do with Jesus, you see. So I hope this is helpful for you in diagnosing things sometimes with people. Our goal, of course, with those kind of people is to get them to finally tell the truth about themselves. The Pharisees won't hear the text. The Pharisees won't tell the truth that they are what? But they are sinners who need a capital S Savior. And so they're offended when Jesus hangs around with a bunch of sinners. Okay? Now just keep that in mind. That's Luke 15 too. Now look at verses 11 to 32. We're still in Luke 15. You know this. You know it by heart. I, I would rename this parable. Does your Bible have a title above verse 11? What's the title say in your Bible? The parable of the lost son. Now that's true, there is a lost son. But I would contend there's two lost sons. <laughs> but I would, <laughs> I would rename the parable if they'd ask me. But they don't. But I'll, I'll tell you. This is really the parable of the waiting and forgiving father. Now let's read. Now Jesus tells this parable. Why? Because he's, he's, he's there for what kind of people? Sinners. And if you don't think you're a sinner... You're offended by this Jesus. So now Jesus tells this parable to clinch the point of who he is and what he's for. Let's read it. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father. Now I love this. The younger boy says to his old man. Hey dad, give me my share of the estate. Now what's this boy really saying when he says, give me my share of the inheritance? Let me paraphrase. I can't wait for you to die, old man. I want it now. And so the younger son considers his, his dad as good as dead to him. Because you only get an inheritance when the old man... <laughs> he's not... He isn't going to wait. I want it now. So I'm going to say that you're dead to me, so give me the inheritance. And lo and behold, what does the old man do? What's the text say? So he divided his property between them. Not just between the father and the younger son, but the father, the younger son, and the other son. All three. Let's keep going. Not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country and then squandered all his wealth. In wild living. You know, went to the casinos, went to the bars, bought everybody around. You know, probably played uh, poker. Lost it all there. You know, you can watch all these games on TV, the poker games. That's fun to watch. The stacks of chips these guys got. <laughs> Don't give away my secrets. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so he prostitutes. He squanders it all in wild living. Is this man a sinner, this, this young boy? Oh, yeah, he's a big-time sinner. Now let's keep going. After he'd spent everything, there's a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Now this boy in the story is no doubt a Jew, a Hebrew, and of course pigs were unclean. 
And Hebrews could not have anything to do with ham, porky pig, all that kind of stuff. This is how bad it is. And he said, the text says he longs to eat what the pigs ate, but no one gave him a thing. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, now watch how this works. He's going to make a plan. This young boy is going to make a plan, and he's going to call the reconciliation shot. In other words, in the plan, the young boy, is he's going to say, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm in charge of how I'm going to restore my relationship with my father and reconcile myself to him. Now notice how his plan goes. He says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. What does that mean? Sin against heaven. What does that mean? If you're a Hebrew, what does that mean? I've sinned against God. Is that true? Yes. What else does he say? And I've sinned against you. Is that true? Yes. But now notice part of the plan. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now here's barking out the orders. He's thinking about the orders that he's going to bark out. Make me like one of your what? Your hired men. Okay, so the plan is what? I'm going to go and make a confession before my father that I've sinned against God and I've sinned against my old man. And here's the clincher. The clincher is this. Here's how I'm going to reconcile and save our relationship. He will not treat me as a son but rather he will treat me as a slave. Got it? That's his plan. Let's see if that happens that way. So he got up and went to his father. And verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. In the Greek here, filled with compassion, the Greek term here is always associated with God. So the father in the parable is who? God. Let's read some more. And what does the father do who's filled with compassion? What's he do? What's the text say? The father runs out to his son, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. Now, brothers and sisters, we read that as Americans, and we miss the cultural significance of this parable and the days in which Jesus lived. Here's, what's really, here's what Jesus is really saying here when he says that the father sees him from a long ways off and then runs out to the son, the sinner. In the ancient world and still to this day in the Middle East, watch, watch. Watch a United Nations meeting in New York and watch the noblemen and the politicians from the Middle East who wear the long flowing robes and the turbans. Watch how they walk. How do they walk? They don't walk like Kuhlman. Their backs are, yes, that's right. Their backs are straight, and they walk slowly and royalty, royally, I should say, royally, regally is how they walk. They never walk fast, which is to say they never run anywhere, anytime, any place in the Middle East. So when this father runs out to meet his son in full view of everyone, what is the father doing? He is totally humiliating himself for the sake of what? Of the father reconciling with his sinful son. Now you, now you begin to understand why Jesus tells this parable to people who are offended by him sitting with sinners. The father welcomes a sinner. 
his son by running out to him, throwing his arms around him and kissing. You all know this in the, so you, I'm back to my blacklist. Raymond Reddington, every time he meets one of his friendly enemies, he's always kissing them on the cheek. <laughs> this is this ancient Middle Eastern practice. <laughs> okay, do you have any questions about what I'm doing here? I hope you're having fun. Good grief. I am. Back to the text. So let's see if the plan works out the way the boy thought. Verse 21. The son said to him, so now the boy's going to unleash the plan. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That was part of his original plan, and he does it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father interrupts. Because the father's already forgiven his son. He's run out to meet him. He's embraced him. He's kissed him. And so what, what is not said? Make me like one of your hired men. The father, to paraphrase, does not permit him to say that. Because the son will not call the shots when it comes to reconciliation. The father does. The father does. The father does. So the, the biggest clincher is, make me one of your, and he's not allowed to say it. Because the father refuses to treat the son like a slave. The father is bullish upon treating his sinful son as a what? A found son. And he will treat him as a son. Now, why is this important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because in the New Testament, what are all of us called? Whether you're a male or a female, you are all what? Children of God. Or what else? Not just children, plural, but singular or plural. Sons of God. Now, the new, the English translations, uh, I'm not sure how to say this very well, but I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are new translations of the New Testament and the Old Testament that refuse to use the masculine nomenclature. They refuse to speak of God the Son. They refuse to speak of God the Father. That's a cool all right? And so they make it all neutered. Everything's neutered. Don't ever let anybody do that to you. Because in the New Testament, when believers are called, whether you're a female or a male, and you are called the son or sons of God, the impact of that is this. Middle East, ancient world way of thinking is what? Who gets the inheritance of the father in the ancient world? The eldest son, right? So when the New Testament calls you believers, sons of God, it means that God the Father treats you all as what? The eldest son. And you get the inheritance. Now when you neuter the language, you lose this. Back to the text. Verse 22. The Father says, now who's barking out the, who's barking out the orders now? It's not the boy. It's the old man. Quick. Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. You don't do that with slaves. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. You don't do that for slaves. Let's have a feast. and let's, You don't do that for slaves that have been recovered. But for a son, yes. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So this parable is told because Jesus has come for what kind of people? Sinners. Now, if you're scandalized with that, you don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so, lo and behold, there is an older son who is scandalized by the father's forgiveness. He's like the Pharisee. Let's read on. 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother then becomes angry. He's like the Pharisee at the beginning of Luke 15 and refused to go in. So what does the father do? The father goes out to the oldest son to plead with him to come in and say, come on, let's smoke some Cubans and let's have a good Johnny Walker. Let's read on. So the father went out and pleaded with him. And now notice what the older brother says. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I love this language, slaving for you. He's a son, he's not a slave. And he thinks his relationship with his father is like master and slave owner. This boy doesn't get it. Let's keep reading. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. So this, this son considers his relationship with his father to all be about what? Works, merit, what he deserves. I've been obedient all these years. I've slaved away for decades. So I deserve something. Let's keep going. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now is that true? Let's see. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. The father doesn't treat him like a slave. He's always treated him like a son. But the son's like the Pharisee. When the father forgives a sinner, he wants nothing to do with this father. You see how this works? See how forgiveness, some people hear forgiveness is what? Judgment. Judgment. So we don't know what, what finds out with the older brother. Jesus leaves us hanging. The father says we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is the whole point of Christ's ministry, to come and run after sinners who desperately need his help. Finally, to clinch the point of the parable, another point of the parable is what? Does the son call the shots when it comes to reconciliation? He thinks he can, but he learns differently. It's the father who does the reconciliation. It's the father who runs. It's the father who embraces. It's the father who kisses. It's the father who kills the fattened calf. It's the father who throws the party and rejoices. So I hope that's helpful for you. Let's pray.